This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. What has been a limiting factor in terms of getting more faculty of color into these schools is that the schools will say, well, we need people that have IB um, experience. Yeah. Lots of faculty of color do not especially if this is their first time applying to international schools. So that they hit a wall, the glass ceiling already right there. Mm -hmm. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. One, two, two. interchangeable. White ladies! Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Megan. For today's essential question, how are international schools uniquely situated to fight, perpetuate, or contribute to educational inequities around the world? Today, we are super lucky to have one of my favorite people that I only have recently come to know, and then she moved far away from us. Um, Yvette Santos Cuenco is a school counselor at the Edmund Burke Independent School in D.C. She's from the Bay Area and lived in Brooklyn, New York, prior to her, her adventures abroad. Yvette holds a B.A. in Anthropology and Asian American Studies from UCLA. She received her MSW from, the New, from New York University and is a licensed master social worker in New York State. Yvette started her therapy counseling journey in Brooklyn, where she provided therapeutic interventions for students with mental health and learning needs in a public school setting. In 2011, she took her experience to Tashkent. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Tashkent, Tashkent, yeah. Uzbekistan. (laughs) And as an international school counselor, this sparked a 10-year global journey from Uzbekistan to Thailand to China and in the UAE, where I had the pleasure of meeting Yvette. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me so excited to be part of the show. (laughs) Yeah, we're so excited to have you here. I'm so excited for this conversation. And just um, a little kind of background of what led to this episode for our listeners is that I've been realizing that we've been having a lot of experts from the international school world on the podcast, and we've been having such amazing conversations. I've been learning a ton about the world of international schools, but I realized there is so much that people living in the States don't know or realize about education outside of the United States, Um, particularly international schools. And is there a difference? And, and, you know, just like all of the layers that I'm realizing that there are that I never realized there were. Um, And so that kind of was the catalyst for this This episode, um, hopefully there will be kind of a series of episodes where we kind of tackle this conversation. So this first episode is going to be kind of what are they, what do they do, what does that look like, Um, and just kind of give some context for the listeners who I I believe predominantly live in the United States. I'm not sure, like I'm sure it's not only people that live in the U.S. just because of hope your kind of reach abroad, but um, just give us some context of what we are talking about when we're talking about international schools on the podcast. So my first kind of question that I want to pose to the both of you is for our international schools, 
And are they different from the schools that children that are citizens in the country that that school is in attend? Is Are these like, are they like public schools? Kind of what does that landscape look like um, in the countries that these are operating in? Eva, you want to start? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really, really good question. Um, I think now that I've had some independent school experience back home in the U.S., I'm confident in saying that international schools, especially the ones that are established as nonprofits by like the different embassies or the UN diplomatic corps, um, operate like in the like independent schools in the United States. So they're very different from a local government public school. Um, and they afford, you know, students who are there like many different opportunities for learning. And in addition to that, like you know, professional de- development and 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 uh, travel opportunities um, for their staff. Um, and in fact, what locals who are in the host country um, who are adults like actually want to work at the international schools because um, even though the pay scale is different and that's a whole different stream of the conversation that we can get into versus the expat foreign like. Um, faculty that are brought in, it's still much better compared to what they would get paid at a local um, public school or even a local private school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things I was thinking about in just this conversation, I think in the U.S., we think about public schools, private schools, independent schools, and then charter schools, which charters are really based depending on state law, whether or not they're considered public or private. And that's a whole other Mm -hmm. can of worms people can get into. Um, But when I was looking up kind of the background of of an international school, I found it interesting because, you know, in part, they started, as I was saying, as a response to um, embassy people coming into a particular country, NGOs being set up there. I mean, if you go back, you can even look at some of the connection to missionary schools, Um, And so a lot of times they started as based on a need, which I think we can kind of get into a little bit later in terms of who ends up attending these schools and like, what does that mean for need? Like, could those, could those other folks have sent their kids to a different school, a local school, or was it depending on what country I think and what part of the world, um, whether or not there was even an opportunity to send, if you're, if you work for an NGO, could you actually send your kid to a local school or not? Right. Were there other kind of limits in place? Um, And so one of the things, and I don't know if if you want to speak more to this as well, is it Mm -hmm. seemed like part of the qualifiers of an international school, there's like, I guess, some criteria that most people agree with, but are is still kind of debated. Um, and it's the idea that that students' um, education transfers across international schools so they can, you know, easily move from school to school, um, that the, there's a moving population um, that's actually much higher than like in state schools or public schools, that the student body is pretty multinational and multilingual, um, that there's an expectation of international curriculum. So there's a few ways that folks define that, but it seems mm-hmm. like folks are really looking at um, IB as part of that international baccalaureate. Um, there's some kind of international accredi- accreditation that's part of the process for international schools. Um, one of the qualifiers I thought was interesting was a transient and ma- multinational teacher population, which multinational doesn't necessarily mean multiracial or inter- <laughs> or multilingual. Right. Um, but yeah, I was, I was kind of interested in, those were some things that kind of popped up to me when I was looking at, you know, what seems to be some defining factors. Do you think that stands, holds true in your experience? Yeah, I think that holds true. I also wanted to add that like, um, international curriculum really just really means a curriculum that has a Western base, 
right? Because the medium of instruction is still English. That's the yeah. that's what's considered the unifying language at many of these schools. Um, and that has its own kind of colonial undertones as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that many of the parents that, that send their students um, to these schools uh, generally have the expectations that the kids will end up going to university in Canada, the U.S., Europe, Australia, or even uh, back in their home countries, wherever that may be. But that's usually the push, right? Um, It's not necessarily enforced, but it's kind of what I mean by enforced, but mandatory, but it's sort of like the stream that that people tend to follow as their kids like move on through the upper grades and and graduate from those schools. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing is that there there is a difference with these international schools versus local schools in in the communities that the schools exist within. Um, I heard you at the beginning say something about like embassies having something to do with establishing some of these schools. Was I correct in hearing that that they're doing? Yeah, yeah. Most most of the schools that are like registered as. Um, nonprofits through the United States, like the 501c3, um, have some influence uh, with being started by the the embassies, but not always, right? Um, So one example is the school that I I was at, Tashkent International School in Uzbekistan, was started by the UN Diplomatic Corps. So we have a lot of, um, we have a built-in relationship uh, with the embassies that are there, Um, mainly the U.S. Embassy uh, South African, if I remember, remember correctly, Korean embassy also had a big um, mm-hmm. influence. But generally, like any embassy that was represented in that country would tend to send ours, their students to um, our school. And also, in addition to that, just to like highlight the difference from uh, the local government school, uh, TIS had a very has a very robust um, scholarship program. And mm-hmm. so if we accept a, a local student um, through the scholarship program starting in, um, I think that's when I was there, they would start at grade 10 with us. So they had finished ninth grade in the local system. They start with us in grade 10 on either a 50% scholarship or a full ride. They cannot go back to the local school system. So essentially when those kids, ha- we have to guarantee that um, they can uh, manage their schooling from 10, 11, 12. We have to help them, um, you know, get through high school and also look into, um, help them look into the university application process. And oftentimes Mm -hmm. with those students, because of the monetary needs, they would need to get like 100% full scholarship outside of um, the country. They could not go to university in Uzbekistan. They would have to leave. Um, and so I'm still in touch with a lot of those kids, our, our, our alumni, and, and it's really neat to kind of see the trajectory mm-hmm. um, mm. from where they go from, you know, starting off in Uzbekistan as a scholarship student and then uh, heading off into the world. Yeah. Um, That's yeah. cool. But different different schools have different, you know, scholarship um, opportunities. Not not all international schools offer them, mm-hmm. but Uzbekistan happened to, um, you know, really be committed. Uh, the school there had happened to be really committed to doing that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. One of the things I think for listeners to try to wrap our heads around, and I, I don't know, um, it's something I think for me, I didn't even really think about too, is we're it not, so there's like a concept, I think in the state because of the way public schools are set up that we think that there's like local public schools that are free. And then there's like private schools that people pay money for. And then these international schools fit in that private school. And it's really not that cut and dry. There's more of a conversation about private versus, or sorry, uh, profit versus nonprofit. And so that's a whole yeah. component that's here. Like, I think Americans, te- we tend to forget that most of the world pays for school, like local yeah. school pay to go to school you pay for uniforms you pay for your lunch you pay for your classes you people pay to get to school even like on the I think on the Mm -hmm. Philippines like um you know sponsoring some kids to like pay for jeepney transportation Mm -hmm. to get to their school so I think that's the other thing to kind of um push aside some other notions that we have in the U.S. is it's not just like there's these you know international schools that are elitist schools and then everybody else you know is getting free education it's not quite that simple um event right. can you talk a little bit about that because you were working um you've worked in i mean both the private the non-profit and the for-profit schools right right so i think yeah there, there definitely is like a difference across different schools like uh, my last school in in the uae was part of a for-profit organization um, and they did, I don't think they offered scholarship. And if they did, it was really, really minimal. Um, and so, you know, the majority of the students that, that went there are from families that could like afford the tuition, which was quite expensive. <laughs> um, and, and so I think it's, it's important for folks to understand that there's not just not pro- nonprofit international schools, there are also for profit. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when educators are out there and interested in um, going overseas, um, it's really important to do your homework and, and mm-hmm. look at like, um, look at, uh, you know, the structure of the schools and things like that. Because that, in in some cases, the the nonprofit status can, can also equate to um, your experience being a little bit better compared to being at a for-profit school because a nonprofit school, um, they tend to, you know, try to attract, you know, more uh, international teachers and also provide a lot more support. At least that's just from, from my experience. Right. I, I'm excited to talk about that differentiation because I think for Mm -hmm. me, as somebody who hasn't ever existed in the international school space, um, Mm -hmm. having conversations about eventually having conversations about how you see the difference in how those schools are tackling DEIJ work, right? Mm. Are, are they tackling that work differently? I would, my assumption is that yes, right? That for-profit schools have different motivations versus nonprofit schools. I don't know if that's correct or not, but, you know, having that, like eventually having that conversation, because I think when I hear that, I hear capitalism and I hear profit mm-hmm. being a motivator for for-profit schools. And mm-hmm. so how does that impact the work being done within those buildings and, and everything, the, the nuance and the layers mm-hmm. of that? Yeah. yeah. I think for-profit schools might also, depending on where you are, um, might also tend to attract more of the host country's population of students. Mm-hmm. Um, so the communities can be very homogenous in terms of the student population. And so therefore they they might use that as an excuse to not talk about diversity, equity, yeah. and inclusion, mm-hmm. yeah. although 
the fact that you're bringing in foreign teachers and then you have a locally um, paid staff or in the case of the UAE, Filipinos and South Asians in your <laughs> local staff that are not paid the same as the Western passport holders um, in your in your faculty, um, you know, that it tends to kind of like be the reason why they don't have those conversations. And, mm-hmm. and you'd find as you dig a little bit deeper that those schools are the ones that should be having even more of those conversations in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to add that like in terms of the nonprofit international schools, there are definitely a few schools that are like well on their way in terms of implementing um, best practice when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice. Um, where they have like a coordinator, they have working groups, they have affinity groups and stuff like that. But when you compare them to like the school where I'm at now, which is on the extreme, more extreme end, positive end, when I say extreme, for progressive education, for a predominantly white institution, I might add, um, it it's it it pales it still pales in comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. One one other kind of thing, not necessarily related to that, but I just think for listeners also to hold the back of their minds. Every as much as we're like generalizing about schools abroad and international schools, so mm-hmm. much is based on the country and like the rules of the local authorities in in conversation mm-hmm. with when the schools were started. And so rules, I think you're gonna ask us some questions about like who are the kids that attend are the schools. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a little bit around student demographic. So much of that is is really, at least from what I've seen, is really based on the the relationship, you know, what were the parameters that were established initially when the school got started and have those shifts shifted or changed mm-hmm. with time. And it seems like some of that stuff is definitely shifting. So maybe some assumptions people have about who's enrolled might be a little bit different, but it's also, yeah, it's right. also based on yeah. local authorities and rules like what you were describing, Yvette, about Uzbekistan and that particular school. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's also like um, in terms of the commitments to DEIJ and really looking at, at that aspect of a school, it also depends on leadership. Yeah. Um, we have some leaders that I, I am well familiar with that are co-conspirators in, the, in that journey. Um, but I think that they're really spread out uh, amongst international schools. And many of the ones I do know are in that in the nonprofit international schools. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's beginning to change as well as, as schools are really starting to want to make a commitment and explore and, and dig a little bit deeper. Um, but I think, especially as an educator of color myself, um, it can be frustrating sometimes because even like a school that is considered to be a good, quote unquote, good school can have a lot of stumbling blocks when it comes to DEIJ. Yeah. I think even before we like, because I want, I think ultimately like that, we want to dive into that conversation. Mm-hmm. I think. Before that, though, one really big question that I have had um, about this is, like, why are these schools necessary, right? Is it Mm -hmm. largely expats, right? Is it largely families that have gotten jobs in these countries and so now need a place for their kids to go to? Um, Like, who is attending these schools, would you say? And I I recognize there's so much nuance, um, there's so much nuance to these schools because it's, you know, all around the world, right? We can't generalize, but in 
um, overall, what has been your experience about the students that are in attendance at, at these international schools? I think it's exactly that, like what, what you just said, that uh, it's, it's um, the foundations of many of these schools are because an expat population was moving in um, to these countries um, and they were seeking an education that can be transferable, right? Either that, you know, you could be a U.S. diplomat working for the embassy and you're, you know that you're only going to be there for three years. So you're mm-hmm. going to need your children yeah. to be in a school. Um, that can match, you know, or even surpass the education that they're receiving in the United States so that when you do go back to the U.S. or, or you move on to somewhere else, um, those, uh, those credits and, and the skills that your children have learned are easily um, transferred over. So there, mm-hmm. it's definitely like that capital, capitalist model of supply and demand, right? There was a, a need or there, there is a need and then um, people figured out a way to to meet that meet that demand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also got me, that question got me thinking a little bit about like um, when folks were kind of coming in for jobs or whatever they were were doing. Um, to what extent it was possible for their students beyond the transferability, like about what you're naming, I think is is extremely powerful. But also thinking about. Um, you know, how practical was, would it have been? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm trying to go back in like the old days, um, mm-hmm. practical or like realistic, would it have been for somebody to send their kid to a local school? So practically speaking, I'm thinking about language, right? If it's in the language that the kid doesn't speak, it's it's not like there's ELL programs for that those kids um, who are, you know, transferring in. I'm thinking about safety. You know, I think about some schools mm-hmm. um, and just kind of the safety, depending on your job, right? If you're working in government position, you know, could you trust, you know, I loosely say trust in quotation marks to send your kid to that school just for safety purposes. And I kind of wonder yeah. about the role of those, those factors as well. And, and there have also been like some schools, um, if they're linked to the U.S. embassy, they're actually on the embassy property. Um, and so uh, the, the school in Tunisia comes to mind. And, and when there was Arab Spring a few weeks, years ago it seems like so long ago when that happened but it was one of the first actual incidents where they um you know there was protests outside of the embassy and they actually burnt down part of the school library and had to had to evacuate everyone i think i'm getting that story correct um you know so there there's there's many different like i guess um reasons for it but safety is one of them and sometimes it is on on a property that's considered you know the safest place um for the students to be during the day mm-hmm. that and that leads me into my next question of how are these schools received or seen have you gotten a sense of how the communities that these schools exist in receive these international schools or the existence of these schools how do mm-hmm. these schools interact with the cultures and communities that they're existing in or do they do you see much work in um the school are is there a mission for it is there an um not maybe mission, but is there an expectation? That's the word I'm looking for. Is there an expectation mm-hmm. that these schools are engaging with and interacting with the communities or is it largely divided in your experience? That's a great question. So I'm just going to, you know, I think the three out of the four schools um, that I, I was at overseas 
um, were able to make that local link um, through the service learning programs and stuff, and, and also working really closely with different cultural organizations to um, host events on the campuses and, and things like that. Um, but also you might have some limitations with the government as to what service learning looks like and and, yeah. and what the students are able to participate in. So for example, in the UAE, there's a lot of red tape um, because there aren't any other NGOs that are like there unless it's sponsored by the government, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in China, When I was in China, if I remember correctly, there were some limitations because of, you know, China's approach to looking mm-hmm. over everything. Um, but you're still able to really um, have that local connection um, with different things going on in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the school that I was at in Bangkok was a for-profit, but the but the owner of the school was super committed to um, service and um, really helping like those in need. Um, so the kids were always involved in like different types of projects and stuff like that. Um, and Uzbekistan also like was probably out of the four schools like integrated local culture the most, and that's because. Uh, we really made a commitment to also like welcoming our local staff to share mm-hmm. um, and they had connections. So that kind of just grew and grew from, from there. And, and from what I understand from folks that are still there in Tashkent, that's still very, very strong and it's a big part of the school's identity. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it, it varies across the schools depending on um, how they're set up, their level of commitment to the service learning piece. Um, and also just the limitations of what the government is able to um, allow you to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about in our case um, at ACS, you know, part of why we started was a partnership with the Sheikh who gave us the land to build the school. And so that mm-hmm. automatically is a different conversation than, you know, an NGO going in and trying to like talk somebody into letting them have a space or whatever, right? So it sets a very different tone. Um, also, I, I know here, you know, it's, it's really important for us to have Emirati students as part of ACS. And so some schools, not just here, but I've, I've also heard, and if it, maybe you can confirm, like some schools, I don't want to use the word quota necessarily, but they have slot, designated spots for students of, you know, the local community to be part of that, of, of enrollment. And so I think there's some interesting ways that that also is part of it. I don't know if that's, you know, you might argue it's tokenism, but also I think it like depends on how it ends up playing out um, in that school yeah. in, in terms of honoring the local culture or not. I remember in Tashkent, like when they were very mindful of making sure that we had a really international community. So, um, the local population, I think they tried to keep it at a cap around 20%, but that was actually, that's actually really high. Yeah. But I think, the, you know, compared to other schools in the region, um, but we, we were also bearing in mind that Uzbekistan is one of two landlocked countries in the middle of nowhere. So, um, you know, we were more open to, to having a larger local population. hmm you know what's great? Interesting. I was reading this article from the Atlantic and I'll link to it um, from 2017. So I don't know how much the data is the same, but one of the things that they were talking about was dem- the article was titled Demand for International Schools. And according to their data of the 8,000 8, international schools that exist around the world, 80% of them have students from, or sorry, 80% of the students 
attending those schools are from the host country. And that yeah. number seemed crazy, crazy high to me, but I thought that was interesting because I think, again, an American perspective is you're like, oh, I can't, this just must n- never have local kids, da, 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 da. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was interesting. Absolutely. Um, and I think that what we're seeing too is that it's trending more that in that direction where there is going to be more um, of the local population. My school in, in Shenzhen it was a nonprofit um, school um, and it's, it's, it's actually the, um, I guess what we call the mothership of international school services. It's mm. the main campus, um, for ISS. Um, and so that's an organization that manages many international yeah. schools around the world. Um, but Sheko International School is like their main, um, main campus, uh, main base in Asia. And many of the students were Chinese, um, mm. They went around it by saying that they were born they were born somewhere else, or if they had lots of money, they bought citizenship from like Burkina yeah. Faso or you know countries that people have never really heard of um, and uh, and then they uh, they're they're able to matri- matriculate in because that's the Chinese government rule. If you are born in China and um, only have a passport in China, you cannot go to an international school. Um, so many families have worked around that. Either they have Hong Kong identification yeah. or they're born somewhere else where they purchased the passport from another country. Mm-hmm. All of that is fascinating. This yeah. is, sounds like a really good place to take a break. Um, so when we come back, I would love to dive deeper into the role of these international schools in DEIJ work. What does that awesome. look like? Um, but let's take a quick break. This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by Pacific Lutheran University. Most colleges raise tuition each year, but they don't increase their student scholarships or financial aid. That means that students and their families are often forced to pay upwards of ten dollars to $12,000 more than they expected. This can push families into financial hardship or force students to leave their university with debt and without a degree. At PLU, we're stopping that cycle. That's why our fixed tuition guarantee ensures that your cost of tuition will be locked in from your first day to your graduation day. Learn more at plu.edu tuition. Welcome back. And if you have not become a subscribing subscribe a subscribing member of Got channel it. 253, please go to the website and do that immediately. It's four dollars a month. And we really appreciate your contribution to making this network work. So thank you, all of our listeners that are already members. Also, by the way, that Slack channel is popping all the time. All so the time. if you want a little side benefit in addition to doing good in the world, um, you should sign up. All right, Megan, you were going right. to cover yeah. so hard-hitting journalist questions. <laughs> hard-hitting <laughs> questions, right? So I think before we jump into fully, like the what is um, completing, finishing, we started talking about the DEIJ work in these international schools. Um, Yvette, you, you mentioned earlier in the episode that even the, the international schools that you've worked at that are doing some DEIJ work, it still is less than the work that is currently being done at the school you're at in Washington, D.C. Um, and so my question is, so what does that look like internationally? What work, what does the work currently look like? Where do you think it's going? Right. Mm-hmm. Where, what are they doing good at? 
what, where mm-hmm. do international schools need to do better at when it comes to um, DEIJ work? That's a great question. Um, I think that um, many of the schools have started off by like buying into like the international baccalaureate and their, which is the curriculum, right? Um, yeah. And and their one of their um, I forgot the IB term for it, but one of their one of their categories, uh, like within that curriculum, is uh, international mindedness. Mm-hmm. So if you like open up any like international school website, you will see internationally minded students like the, their descriptor. It's all over their mission and vision. Yeah. So, um, but when you dig a little bit deeper at times, it can still feel like it's just like the buffet of international mindedness. So mm-hmm. they're hosting a UN day or they have a model UN competition or they feature like maybe on um, you know, the national day, something from the host country, mm-hmm. but they're really not like, not all schools are having like event. the more, sorry. An international day event. I'm just thinking the other right. ways yeah, that are kind of tough. Yeah. But there, if you dig a little bit deeper, like these are things that they can post on their website and, and social right. media. Right. Yep. But they're not having like a lot of international schools are not really digging beyond that because that's what we call like the front facing aspect of DEIJ work, right? Mm-hmm. The real work should, is the real work that many, some schools are engaging in are looking at the curriculum, um, having conversations with faculty and your local staff yeah. about um, equity and inclusion, um, engaging your students and parents in those difficult, but, oftentimes joyous conversations about that right mm-hmm. um and so the schools have approached that on varying levels some schools a lot of schools are still really at the beginning stages right some schools will upfront and tell you that they don't really know where to start mm-hmm. and 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 sometimes it it unfortunately puts the faculty of color who are expats and have a little bit more agency and vocabulary, language, and experience, it puts us in the position of doing the emotional labor of helping the school do that work, mm. right? So in addition to our job, we're also kind of like the one saying, why are we the only ones thinking about mm-hmm. this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as a result of that, of, of not wanting to feel isolated, there have there there are like, organizations out there that have popped up um, that are doing the work that are supporting people in doing the work Um, one major shout out that I have to make is to the association for international Mm -hmm. educators and leaders of color aka ALOC those are my people Um, and also um, I'm the task force leader for DEIJ uh, for the International School Counselors Association so those are just like two examples of like or umbrella right. organizations that are like really helping people do the work. Right. Um, and so I think that like within the last five years, what we've seen, especially after the murders of um, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and that long list, Breonna Taylor, mm-hmm. seems like the list is getting longer and longer. Um, 
and and that sparked the the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, we're seeing more kind of response and mm-hmm. not and the push for organizations, international schools to be less reactive and be more proactive, right? Um, and it's also coming from our students. So yeah. I actually, um, uh, they're, I call them my fan club, but I'm actually more fans of them. Um, so there's an organization called the Organization to Decolonize International Schools. And that was started by a couple of alumni from Tashkent International School. And I met them when they were seventh graders. So sometimes I slip into calling them kids, but they're young women now. Um, And um, they did the research on the IB and they're calling out the IB um, on uh, the lack of, you know, uh, diversity in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, mind you, they're alumni, so they're already out of it. But as a result of them forming that network, um, they've also kind of like connected with actual students within the international school world from all over the world that are also calling us out and in and asking us to do better in terms of us being the adults, right? Right. Um, and if you ever have the chance to look on Instagram, there's a couple of international schools that wound up with black black app accounts in addition to the independent schools that have that wound up with black at accounts, mm-hmm. um, meaning that, you know, students were pa- copying and pasting or posting, you know, incidences of microaggressions that they've experienced yeah. at their school. Um, Edmund Burke doesn't have one, but our DIJ coordinator and I talked about that. Like it, it could go either way. Like we don't have one because the students aren't, you know, feel like they, they don't have much to, yeah. you know, create a black ad account, or it could be that they're feeling so disenfranchised that they don't right. see the point point in posting right. one. So we have to be mindful of that as well. Like don't, don't pat yourselves on the shoulder too quickly for not having a black ad account. It yeah. doesn't mean that it's not happening at your school. I really love that you all are having those conversations because that means you're cognizant enough and aware and self-aware and all the, all the awareness <laughs> to know it could be either either way, right? Yeah. T- to me, mm-hmm. it seems like part, I mean, I've, I know we've been abroad that long, but kind of my little, my small hot take about it is I feel like a big part of the conversation that prevents people from wanting to talk about this stuff internationally is it's a lot of, oh, it's twofold. One, you have to think about the fact that these schools are led, the data shows that it's led mostly by white men, okay? Mm-hmm. So if you have them in those leadership positions on the boards, heads of schools, et cetera, et cetera. They're going to care about the things that they care about. And these kinds of things are really not what they care about in general. Right. And so I think there's a little bit of that top down trickle effect. And so they're, you know, blind eye, they can turn it, they don't have to pay attention or whatever. Then I think another huge problem, it seems like, um, is the fact that because schools are labeled as international schools and because they do have, you know, a multicultural, multinational, multilinguistic population, right, whatever the numbers may be, I find that there seems to be that's an excuse that we don't have racism because look how look how international we are, right? Yeah. How diverse we are. Look at our staff. We got people from this country and that country and the other country, and we all appreciate each other. And we have in an international day celebration and like listed some of the other things, right? right? And so I think 
to me, it's, you know, it's just the, what I've discovered as the like version of, you know, I don't see color. It's like the international. Yeah. That. yeah. Um, and it seems like those two things are a huge factor for why it's, these schools are really late to the party of conversation around race and equity and justice. Yeah. I, so, um, I'm thinking about a lot off of what the both of you have just said. I think what I would love to tackle first is this idea of that front-facing DEIJ work versus that internal systemic work. And something that the both of you have now alluded to several times is staffing at the schools. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so when looking at that, it sounds like they're using diversity and I'm saying that with quotation marks because that's what it sounds like when you you all talk about staffing at the school like diversity and quotation marks as a very front-facing DEIJ work but not looking at what are the actual systems and flows of power within the staffing at Mm -hmm. the school and so what what is the balance of staffing at the school I want to unpack this a little bit and you've mentioned pay scale several times in this conversation. And so what are you referencing when you're saying that, um, you know, are white educators valued more, right? Are, mm-hmm. are different educators valued more in the international school space than others? And then what does that, what does that say to the staff as well as students? Does it impact curriculum? All like, I just want to unpack this because it's this to me as an outsider looking in, this feels like, uh, like the thing, right? That that really wanted, I want to dig into with the both of you a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I, I want to reference the Council of International Schools, uh, which is what that was talking about earlier. They just put out a report this fall that really unpacks like the hiring practices component. Um, so some of the data I was talking about earlier around being 75% male in leadership positions, but boards being 60% male, but the teaching staff in a generally in an international school is 61% female. Um, but then like the racial makeups um, and who teaches what courses. Uh, so I, I just want to chime in on that and I'll, I'll link to that report too, because I think it's pretty yeah. fascinating as part of the conversation. Yeah, I think that that report was from ISS, the Diversity Collaborative, right? Yeah. Like they did that research um, in, in conjunction with the Council for International Schools. Um, and so this is why, you know, a lot of international schools don't know what PWI means, but it's predominantly white institution. Um, shout out to my HBCU uh, friends and colleagues uh, uh, that have taught me that term. Um, and so... Um, yeah, like international schools in many ways still operate on that old boys network. Mm-hmm. Um, many times like people will, um, you know, rely on word of mouth or recommendations from people that they know from other schools that want to work at their school now. So I think that, you know, the referral process, um, you know, that part is is not much different from when you apply for jobs in the U.S. or anywhere yeah. else. Right. Like it's very similar. Um, but I think the difference is sometimes is that there really has not been like a vetting process in terms of like um, making sure that the people that you're bringing in have like are working or at least have good analysis or working towards positive analysis when it comes to DEIJ. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so uh, in, in one school in particular, um, uh, I won't name the name of the school, but it's in Africa. Um, that and it, it is publicly known amongst international schools where um, you know there was a problematic head of school 
Um, and then there was a problematic teacher as a result of that person hiring this teacher. And it was well publicized on the Black at account of that school that led to that teacher eventually like having to be replaced by the new head of school. And the new head of school was more aware and accepting and, and willing to work through the DEIJ practices that the old former head of school wasn't. Right. And mind you, this is all anecdotal stuff that I heard from people that worked for this person. So um, you can take that with a grain of salt, but that's just like one example. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's also important to point out that um, the international school world can be big, but when you start talking to people, it's yeah. actually yeah. very small. Super so small. word about word, you know, news like that gets around like really quickly. Um and, and and that that goes down to also like the inequitable like hiring practices, right? So there's that, you know, bringing your people that you know in from your previous schools without having like an actual um, process or an interview or whatever, um, where you're you're asked you know these questions or not even in your referral process where you where the your referees are asked these questions about you as an applicant, um, but also in addition to that, I think what has been a limiting factor in terms of getting more faculty of color into these schools is that the schools will say, well, we need people that have IB um, experience. Yeah. Lots of faculty of color do not, especially if this is their first time applying to international schools. So that they hit a wall, the glass ceiling already right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know of, uh, another school in Africa that is like employing really positive um, DEIJ practices and is doing the work that one of their first things uh, when they were researching their own hiring practices was eliminating that as a requirement. And so that way they're really looking at the ca- candidate's actual um, teaching uh, practice and pedagogy. Um, and I think that's that's really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking as well, um, just in comparing to the U.S., like in some ways, I think you pointed out it's smaller. And in some ways, it's there's an opportunity for some change to happen a lot faster because I feel like there's... Mm-hmm. There's red tape, but it's it's less red tape. It's red tape in very particular kind of ways that's different than like mm-hmm. a, a school district in the United States, big school districts. But I almost liken it to some of those smaller school districts that are able to implement programs pretty quickly, you know, if they can find the funds to do something, right? Or like quick turn, you know, when they see a need in the community or you have a good leader or whatever the case may be. Um, so I was thinking a little bit about that in this process. And one of the things I was thinking too is just the similarities in terms of, of those walls folks face. You know, I think about how many times, you know, what training you had is used as an excuse not to hire somebody who's actually good for that job. Like in the U.S., mm-hmm. you have to be, you know, there's there's laws in place you can't necessarily say, you know, there's certain things you can't say, but there's some of that same parallel um, in terms of um, not hiring certain folks and folks of color in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, plus we got like the, the national, like the passport privilege that happens. And so because it's oh, international yeah. schools, because it, they want certificates from the West, right. From Europe, from the UK, from Canada, et cetera. There's also that. And part of that, you, I, I think some schools hands are tied in the sense of 
the agreement with the local authorities is that you must hire and these are the certificates that we that matter, right? So how are you going right. to f- fight systemic racism within that country that, or systemic, whatever, nationalism? What, 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 what word am I looking for? <laughs> yeah, or systemic bias within, yes. within that country, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. so you're not going to fight yeah. that part, right? But that doesn't mean you can't do something about the ways that that, you know, plays out. And, you know, where can you, where can you push the envelope a little bit? But you also have that layer too that I think is different than in the U.S., um, because, mm-hmm. if, you know, once you get uh, your certificate in one state, you can do re- some states allow reciprocity or you just do the, re- you know, the local test again and, you know, get your mm-hmm. next state. Yeah. Getting. It's not yeah. quite like that abroad. Um, and so there's a hierarchy there. So, like, I think about some folks I've met who teach, you know, who are assistants in the classroom, not, um, you know, mm-hmm. core teachers or main teachers. And they have more qualifications, as many qualifications as the head teacher or more qualifications than the head teacher. But because of where they got their cert from, it wasn't viewed in the same way. So they were unable to get the primary job. Right. It makes me think about the y'all before earlier in the episode, you were talking about the number of um, students from host, the host country that are attending these international schools. Mm -hmm. And, but then the responsibility that the school then has of who they're putting in front of these students um, and are they perpetuating colonial curriculum that is actually going to be extremely harmful to these students from the host country and what type of education are they receiving and just because it's an international school does not inherently make it a uh, like a good school for those students um and so like those are all the things that I'm thinking about is like the quality of educator that you're putting into the classroom you said pedagogy right what are they doing what are they valuing what curriculum Mm -hmm. are they putting together and is that curriculum going to be damaging or harmful to students identities from the host country that are now attending these inner there's so many layers um (laughs) that we have and I think that really is the foundation probably for our next episode we're kind of reaching the end of our our (laughs) yeah (laughs) I'm looking at the time and I'm realizing part two though I feel like a vet's got something that you were going to say something um to add on to this and then um, I'm hearing us just setting up a part two conversation, which yeah. is I hope that you could oh, yeah. join us Sounds again good. for that episode as well. No, I, I just wanted to add on to what Hope was saying, where especially in the UAE, and I also saw this in Thailand, because many of our uh, TAs or, or EAs um, in, in, at the school in Thailand were Filipino. Mm-hmm. And, and these folks got like degrees, right? Like yeah. bachelor's, master's. Yep. We're teaching already in the Philippines um, before they went overseas. And and the Philippines has its own history of depending on uh, their people leaving and sending money back home. That's the basis of the economy in the Philippines. Um, But, you know, uh, and and they're working as as assistants, right? Mm -hmm. Where if, if they're lucky to be with a teacher that really values their their input, and so it's like a really a co-teaching partnership, yeah. but there are other situations where it's not. And so, um, you know, and maybe I am a little bit biased because it's like, you know, I, I can identify, you know, as a child of Filipino immigrants, I can, that, that, that hits closer to home, uh, to me than, than others maybe, but, um, they are undervalued. 
yeah. you know, and, and and we and we have other situations where like South Asians could be in those positions as well, or even our local. Um, if it's, if it's a country that hires local staff to be in those positions, then yeah. you know you, those people are highly educated within the mm-hmm. context of their countries, but just mm-hmm. don't have the upward mobility because of the passport bias. Right. And then what is that? What yeah. message does that send then to the student body? Right. What mm-hmm. like what hierarchical um, messages and conversations are that sparking or internal biases is that creating in the students of that school as well? Mm-hmm. Um, well and we haven't even yeah. touched on parents. Like, let's throw that on paper for next time, too, because yeah. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't have a conversation about parents. There are parents who want their kids to be taught by certain looking folks and not other folks. And like, that's all. Yep. Yeah. That's always the back and forth. Yeah. The yeah. white supremacy, right. like deep, deep running roots. So. Which I think really sets up our part two episode of what, um, you know, what is the role of international schools in this work and, and how are international schools perpetuating this idea of um, white supremacy and um, colonialism around the world, right? And how do how do they then combat that, right? What what is their responsibility to combat that? What is the path forward um, with that knowledge? So I think setting up part two, Yvette, I hope you come back and join us for that episode because um, it's really great to talk to you about this. I've learned a lot in this episode. I hope that people that are listening have also learned a lot about. Um, what's going on in these like international schools that took hope from us. So <laughs> is there anybody else you shouted out a couple of folks before we, we say goodbye, anybody else you wanted to shout out Yvette, uh, either doing the work, um, someone you respect, whatever the case may be. Oh my goodness. Um, there are so many people <laughs> out there that are doing the work. So um, I want to shout out, uh, you know, ALOC and ISCA again, um, are my Asian and Asian Pacific Islander international educators um, that are out there doing the work. Um, and I guess, you know, folks who are DIJ coordinators that are doing the work at international schools and, and digging deep here in the independent schools. Um, it's such, it's such important work. And I'm, I'm really grateful for them because they also help me kind of uh look inwards and understand my own biases so that I can be a better service to my students. Perfect. Thank you so much um, for coming and joining us and we'll talk soon. Yeah, definitely. All right. Bye. Bye. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. Um, like a bald eagle ripping open its chest feathers and like the American flag. Oh, that'd be a good one. (laughs) The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.